don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. Yeah, we're on. Yeah, sorry. I was watching a TikTok that my uh, sister sent me. Oh yeah, well, I thought it would be funny to just uh, pop on to while just you ambush were, me. <laughs> yeah, while you're while you're listening to TikToks. Um. Anyway, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee, please. Don't talk to me if, until I've had my Casamigos Blanco. <laughs> More like. Breakfast <laughs> of the champions. Um. Folks, we're still trying to decide what we're going to do next, um, and we appreciate your feedback and, um, sug- you know, uh, suggestions pushing us for stuff. Uh, Molly has started, uh, has, has glanced at the beginning of Gravity's Rainbow. I'm, dar- I'm darting into uh, the, the Grav, Grav, Grav Rain, Grav Bow. Okay, look, I, I feel like we can be brutally honest and transparent with you dear listeners because uh you know you made it this far in this and uh, you know what we were just talking about was we are not quitters as you can tell no. from this pop project that's one of the main things is when we start something it's it, look the, the bit doesn't work if you don't finish it yeah it's true uh so if we start something, we need to finish it. And the uh, thing about this project that makes it work is that Molly has read this book several times and knows that it is good and is yeah. going to grab us enough to be worth reading all the way through. Yeah. Uh, so with other books, you know, we don't, we just don't want to get tra- trapped in something where we're like 400 of 900 pages into something and be like, this sucks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, yeah, we, we want something to be thoroughly like vetted enough. And I've certainly read, read enough other things. Well, I don't know. Well, we're doing, we're in an you know, exploratory our, yeah, period, but I also, it's gotta be like good and funny. That's the yes. other thing is that I feel like and it also has to be, funny. it has to hit all the things of being like, not only is it good and are we enjoying reading it, that it, but it's kind of funny that we're doing it. You yeah. know, it is like a bit that yeah. we're, so some of the other things, you know, Moby Dick is one that I've thought of would be a good one, but I don't think either of us have have actually read it. No, I have not read it. And I started like, it and I didn't finish it. And the thing is, is like, I know that it's a classic and I know that cool people like talking it up, but the, is, the thing is, is like, are we both going to be excited to read 10 pages of it every su- Saturday mm-hmm. or Sunday morning, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think honestly, you're maybe we can float it. I think your idea for Neuromancer was kind of a good one. Oh, Neuromancer, a book that we both love and have read, and keep keep it um, more toward the like you know future like kind of post postmodern futuristic speculative like that's where I yeah that's that, where I that honestly might be might be the the swerve for this because mm-hmm. like. And then maybe you can get, take a ch- take the time to reread reread Red Gravity's Rainbow and, see, and be like, am am I going to be into this? Uh, we could also do like uh, inherent vice and do some other pinching. Yeah, uh, uh, and again, uh, the other thing that I said that, is the that plot. We- the plot of inherent vice is honestly, I feel like I might have a harder time with it than Infinite Jest. <laughs> I just watched the movie for the first time a few weeks ago that at this point, rocks. and I was like, I was also high, uh, and I was like, I don't actually quite know what's going on. I don't right know. Now. What, I, I don't know what happens in that movie, but it's fine. It doesn't matter. It it's doesn't, just the, fine. Po- the point <laughs> is that survive. it's the point is that it's. I have. Uh, I don't know what the plot is of that movie, but I have a takeaway from that movie, which is I think that it is about Bigfoot and Doc passing each other on the way down of their cultural relevancy from the '60s. You yeah. know, yeah, they're both people who know who are kind of like a, an extinct, the last of their species. You know, uh, walking walking the earth alone, and in that way, they need each other, even if they hate each other. You yeah, know? yeah. That's kind of my takeaway from I that movie. All right, should we get into it? We've got a we got a chunk. Yeah, I, I mean, the only other thing that we that I'll say is that there's, as I was just saying there, to you, Molly, there, there's tons of stuff that we could do to just buy time. Like we could read some of the David Foster Wallace short short uh, or essays or short. He doesn't really have short stories, but essays. He's got, he's got some short stories. Girl with curious hair. <laughs> the uh, the ugly men's association. What is that book? Oh, brief, brief interviews brief. with hideous men. Yes. Yeah. Uh, All of his other books look sound like titles of uh, himself's filmography. <laughs> Even the Pale King. The Pale King. Yes. Well, that I feel like I have to refuse. I re- I read that my senior year of college, like a not that long after it came out, and I was like, okay, maybe I'd appreciate it more. It's just maybe, not done. I, hey, I have a maybe hard if time. He finished it. It's a it's an unfinished fucking novel, and you can tell. He, I, I honestly think he would probably be mortified that that ever got published. Really? Yes. It, I, well, I then can't you should you shouldn't have killed yourself, dude. If you didn't want your unpublished books true. getting published, that's true. All right, what do you think? I'm getting a a. a 
Okay. A pleasant morning buzz. No. <laughs> there was a there was a, a but yeah. Cross buzz wires. On the uh on the recording for yeah. a second. All right. Now I'm ready. Let's okay. go. Okay. So we're right in the middle of figuring out this scam that uh Fackelman is yes. uh running on mm-hmm. the books. Uh and so but PHJ's point, which Gately has to just about crack her scalp open, flicking out of her. Gwendine O'Shea, familiar with 80s Bill and his YU bulldog sentimentality, plus cranially soft as a fucking grape, O'Shea took Fackelman's call wrong. Thought Fackelman said 80s Bill wanted 125000 with negative two points on Yale instead of negative two on Brown. Oh uh, my God, I forgot that we were betting on fucking Ivy college League. Basketball. Ivy Ivy League, League college basketball. Ivy League basketball. Oh, so fucking lame. Uh, put Fackelman on hold and made him listen to Irish Muzak while she put in a call to a Yale athletic department mole out of Sorkin's read-protected databases mole file and learned that the Yale U Bulldogs' star power forward had been diagnosed with an extremely rare neurologic disorder called postcoital vestibulitis, <laughs> which takes us to EndNote 375, known less sensitively among neurourology residents as dizzy dick disorder or sometimes <laughs> just 3D, which takes us back to... The text, in which for several hours after intercourse, the power forward tended to suffer such a terrible vertiginous loss of proprioception that he literally couldn't tell his ass from his elbow, much less make an authoritative move to the bucket. Plus then O'Shea's second call to Sorkin's brown U athletic mole, a locker room attendant everybody thinks is deaf, reveals that several of brown U's most sirenish and school-spirited hetero co-eds had been recruited, auditioned, briefed, rehearsed, i.e. debriefed, giggles pamphlet Hoffman Jeep, whose giggle involves the sort of ticklish shoulder-writhing undulations of a much younger girl getting tickled by an authority figure and pretending not to like it. And stationed at strategic points, I-95 rest stops, in the spare tire compartment at the rear of the Bulldogs' chartered bus, in the evergreen shrubbery, outside the team's special entrance to the Pizzatola Athletic Center in Providence, in concave recesses along the Pizzatola tunnels between special entrance and visitor's locker room, even in a specially enlarged and centrally appointed locker next to the power forwards locker in the VLR, all prepared like the brown cheerleaders and pep squad who've been induced to do the game pantyless, electrolyzed, <laughs> and splits prone to help lend a pyrotechnic glandular atmosphere to the power forwards whole playing environment. Prepared <laughs> to make... Pyrotechnic glandular atmosphere. Here, can we switch mics for a second? Yeah. Uh... Prepared uh, to make the penultimate sacrifice for squad. One of my favorite things is when people misuse penultimate uh, and think that it means more ultimate. Yeah, the most ultimate. ultimate. Me too. The penultimate sacrifice for squad, school, and influential members of the Brown Alumni Bruins Boosters Association. So that Gwendine O'Shea then swishes back to Fackelman and okays the mammoth bet and point spread as like who wouldn't with that kind of mole reported fix in the works. (laughs) Except, of course, she's taken the wager backwards, i.e. O'Shea thinks 80s bills now got 125K on Yale coming within two points, while 80s bill who it turns out cast himself as white knight in bidding for majority control of Providence's federated funnel and cone core, Onan's <laughs> leading manufacturer of conoid receptacles, with FF&C CEO'd by a prominent Brown alumnus so rabid a Bruins booster he actually wears a snarling hollow bear head to conference games, <laughs> whose ass 80s bill is going about kissing like nobody's beeswax, PhD inserts, hinting it was 80s Bill who'd tipped the Bruins staff off about the power forwards Achilles' vast deference. I I like that in the last, like, 10% 10% of this book it's become uncut gems for uh for for Ivy so League basketball. Right. Chris, you're so right. EB quite reasonably believes he's now got Brown within a deuce for 125 El Grandes. So, uh you you understand the um the like it's it's a, it's convoluted, right? But basically the bet the bet is backwards. Yeah, the, but he was already betting against himself and then there's yes, this weird and now he involved. and now he because of Pamela Hoffman Jeep at put accidentally put in the PhD has nothing to do with oh, it sorry, other sorry, than sorry. it's just recounting the story. Okay. Uh it's the Irish um Gwendine O'Shea, the reception. Gwendine who put in the bet backwards. The wrench in the ointment <laughs> that nobody in Providence has counted on is the picket and knuckle duster wielding appearance of Brown University's entire 
Dworkinite female objectification prevention and protest phalanx outside the Pizzatola Athletic Center's main gates. Dworkinite right, is, is a very good descriptor. Right at game time. Two FOPPPs per motorcycle who blow through the filigreed gates like they were so much wet Kleenex and storm the arena, plus a division of Brown's pluckier undergraduate NOWs who execute a pincer movement down from the cheap seats up top during the first time out. As the precise, at the precise moment, the Brown cheerleaders' first pyramid maneuver ends in a midair split that causes the Pizzatola scoreboard scorekeeper to reel backward against his controls <laughs> and blow out both homes and visitors' zeros on the board. Uh, just as the FOPPP's unmuffled hogs come blatting malevolently down through the ground level tunnels and out onto the playing floor. And in the siren, uh, in the si- ensuing melee, not only are cheerleaders, pep squad, and comely brown U sirens all either laid out with picket signs wielded like shillelaghs or thrown kicking and shrieking over the burly shoulders of militant FOPPPs and carried off on roaring hogs, leaving the Yale Power Forward's delicate nervous system intact, if overheated. But two brown U Bruin starters, a center and a shooting guard, both too wrung out and dazed by a grueling week of comely siren auditioning and rehearsing to have sense enough to run like hell once the melee spills out onto the Pizzatola hardwood, are felled. Uh, by a FOPP knuckle duster and a disoriented referee with a martial arts background, respectively. <laughs> and so when the floor is finally cleared and stretchers borne off and the game resumes, Yale U cleans Brown U's clock by upwards of 20. Then so Fackelman calls up 80's bill and arranges to pick up the skeet, which is 137500 with the vig, which EB gives him in large nomination pre onan script in a Go Brown Bruins gym bag he'd brought to the game to sit next to the ursine-headed CEO with and now has less than no use for. But so Fackelman receives uh, the skeet downtown and blasts up cheesy Route 1 to Saugus to deliver the skeet and pick up his vig on the vig, $625 US, right away, needing to cop blues in what's starting to be the worst way ever, etc. Plus, Fackelman's figuring on maybe a small bonus or at least some emotional validation from Sorkin (laughs) for bringing such a mammoth and promptly remitted wager. But when he gets to the Route 1 titty bar, at the rear of which Sorkin has his administrative offices behind an unmarked fire door and all wallpapered in stuff that looks like Ursat's wood paneling, Gwendine O'Shea wordlessly points behind her station at Sorkin's personal office door. With a terse gesture, Fackelman doesn't think fits with the upbeatness of the occasion at all. The door has got a big poster of R. Limbaugh on it from before the assassination. Uh, Rip Rush Limbaugh. Died uh, uh, two years ago yesterday. Uh, uh, one of the shittiest people of all time. Yeah, well, in in uh, Infinite Death World, uh, he's he's assassinated, I guess. Oh <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll have to look into that. Sorkin's in there working spreadsheets with his special monitor screen light filtering goggles on. The go- hey, he's got blue blockers. Blue, blue blockers. <laughs> the goggles lenses on their long protruding barrels look like lobsters' eyes on stalks. Gately and Fackelman and Bobby C never spoke to Sorkin until spoken to. Not out of henchmanish obsequity, but because they could never tell what Sorkin's craniofacial vascular condition was or if he could tolerate sound until they verifiably heard him tolerating his own sound. So G. Fackelman waits wordlessly to hand over 80s Bill's skeet, standing there tall and soft and palely sweating, the overall shape and color of a peeled boiled egg. When Sorkin hikes an eyebrow at the gold Bruins bag and says the knee-slapping hilarity of the joke escapes him, Falcoman's mustache positively takes off all over his upper lip, and he prepares to say what he always says when he's flummoxed, that whatever's being said is, with all due respect, a goddamn lie. Sorkin saves his data and pushes his desk chair back so he can reach all the way down to the fireproof drawer. The goggles are often used in data processing sweatshops and list for a deuce. Sorkin grunts as he hauls out a huge old mass lottery box for quick pick cards and heaves it onto the desk where it bulges obscenely, filled with 112.5k US. There's 112.5 fucking k in there, all in ones. Uh, 125k minus Vig, what Sorkin via O'Shea believes to be 80s Bills winnings, all in small bills because Sorkin's pissed off and can't resist making a little, like, gesture. Falkelman doesn't say anything. His mustache goes limp as his mental machinery starts revving. 
Sorkin, massaging his temples, staring up at Fackelman with his goggles like a crab in a tank, says he supposes he can't blame Fax or O'Shea, that he'd have okayed the bet himself, what with the neurologic tip on the Yale forward they had. Who could have foreseen thuggish feminazis screwing up the ointment? He utters a bit of Gaelic that Fackelman doesn't know but assumes to be fatalistical. He peels six C-notes and an Onanite 25 spot off a wad the size of an artillery shell and pushes them across the metal desk at Fackelman, his vig on the vig. He says, what the fuck, Sorkin does. This 80s Bill's kid's irrational sentimentalism for Yale will sooner or later catch up with him. Veteran books tend to be statistically philosophical and patient. Fackelman doesn't even bother to wonder why Sorkin refers to 80s Bill as kid when they're both about the same age. But a high watt bulb is slowly beginning to incandesce over Fackelman's moist head, as in the Faxter starts to conceptualize the overall concept of what must have happened. That's must of, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite misspellings. Uh, he still hasn't said anything, Pamela Hoffman Jeep emphasizes. Uh, Sorkin looks Fackelman over and asks if he's gained some asymmetrical type weight there. Fackelman's left tit does look noticeably bigger than his right under his sport coat because of the legal envelope with 137 one-thousands and one-five-hundred in it, the skeet from an 80s bill who'd thought he'd lost, just like Sorkin thought E.B.'d won. The slight high whine in the room that Sorkin thinks is his Infernatron disk drive is really the whine of Fackelman's high-speed me- mentation. Uh, he's like uh, the Dune guy whose eyes are... Oh, really uh, yeah, <laughs> the mentat. His mustache roils like a cracked whip as he works his own <laughs> internal mental spreadsheet. I feel like that that's a, uh, um, oh God, what, what's his name? Um, the wizard people dear reader type phrase. His mustache roils like, like a, a cracked, cracked whip. whip as he works his own internal <laughs> mental spreadsheet. I wonder if you did the whole book like that. Yeah, I, I will at this point now. Is he worse? 250K in one lumpy sum <laughs> represented really... like 375 sky blue grams of hydromorphone <laughs> hydrochloride or like 37,500,000 th- 10 milligram soluble tablets of the shit available <laughs> from a certain rapacious but discreet Chinatown opiate dealer who'd only deal synthetic narcs in 100 gram weights. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> it, it works. It works. That's you could, crazy. Do, you could This do section that. in particular yeah, because yeah. it's so uh, wordy. Like descriptive and, and wordy. Oh, God. I'll read it normally. Do you think David Foster Wallace ever got to see uh, any Brad Neely work? Maybe. They uh, overlapped by uh, uh, like three three years. Yeah. He could have seen Fliff Night. Maybe I it, that would have saved him. It really depends on what kind of computer he had, you yeah, know, true. what kind of internet. Was he spending much is. time on early YouTube? Yeah. I personally, sorry. I mean, I know he lived in like Illinois. I had such China, bad. Illinois. <laughs> yeah. He could have uh, he could have been one of the professors at uh at China Illinois. Yeah, University. he might he might be the very academic. There's something uh, I've been meaning to tell you about the college at the end of the town. <laughs> no one should ever go there. God, please, I, please, dear leaders, dear readers, <laughs> go watch all of Brad Neely's stuff. He's such a genius. He's great. We're in a Brad Neely face. Yes, he's one of the best humorists of the 21st century. All right, 250k in one lumpy sum represented like 370. Sky blue grams of hydromorphone hydrochloride, which takes us to end note 376 real quick. Noel Laboratories, good old Dilaudid, $666 uh, a gram wholesale, $5 a milligram street at YWQMD valuations. Back to the text. Or like 37,510 milligram soluble, soluble tablets of the shit available from a certain rapacious but discreet Chinatown opiate dealer who'd only deal synthetic narcs and 100 gram weights, which all translated, assuming Kite could be persuaded to pack up his DEC 2100 and move far, far away with Fackelman to help him set up a street distribution matrix in some urban market far, far away into close to like, let's see, carry the one like 1.9 million in street value, which some meant that Fackelman and to a lesser junior partner extent kite could have their chins on their chest for the rest of their days without ever having to strip another apartment forge another passport break another thumb all of Fackelman just kept his map shut about O'Shea's confabulation of Yale Brown Brown Yale mumbled something about an IV adulterant causing a sudden and temporary gigantism in one tit and blasted out of there straight down route one to this one Dr. Woe and Associates hung toys cold tea emporium Chinatown 
by this time, Pamela Hoffman Jeep had succumbed to the highballs and her own <laughs> swaddled warmth and was irre- irreversibly swooned, ice or Philip or no, twitching synaptically and murmuring to somebody named Monty that he was certainly no kind of gentleman in her book. <laughs> but Gately could chart the rest of Fackelman's shit creek's course for himself. When first approached by Fackelman with a go-brown gym bag of Dr. Woe's finest wholesale delauded and invited to decamp with him and set up a distrib, a distrib matrix for their own drug empire far, far away, Kite would have staggered back in horror at Fackelman's obviously not knowing that the better 80s Bill was in fact none other than the son of 60s Bob, viz. Whitey Sorkin's personal migraineologist who Sorkin trusted and confided in, as only a massive IV dose of Caffergot can make you trust and confide, and whom Sorkin would undoubtedly tell all about the guy's own son's huge win on Yale, and who wasn't like Ward and Wally close with his own son, 60s Bob wasn't, but naturally kept distant paternal tabs on him, and would certainly have known that E.B.'d in fact bet Brown in an attempt to cozy up to the conic CEO, and so would know that there'd been some kind of mix-up. And also that, Kite would still be staggering back in horror as all of this added up. Plus, even if Sorkin somehow didn't get told of 80s Bill's loss and Fackelman's scam from 60s Bill, the fact was that Sorkin's newest, savagest U.S. muscle, Bobby C. C., old-fashioned smack addict, copped regular old organic Burmese heroin from this Dr. Woe on a regular basis and was sure to hear about 300-plus grams of wholesale Dilaudid bought by a Fackelman known to be C's co-employee off Sorkin. And thus that Fackelman, who, when he came to kite with the proposition, was already in possession of a brown booster bag full of 37,510 milligram Dilaudids and minus Sorkin's 250K, Plus, with, as Gately later knew, only 22000 in suicidal scam backfire insurance capital, was already dead. Fackelman was a dead man, Kite would have said, staggering back with horror at Fax's idiocy. Kite would have said he could smell Fackelman already biodegrading from here. That is a fucking post, he'd have told Fackelman. Fucking post. That is a fucking post, he'd have told Fackelman, already worrying about being seen sitting there with him in whatever titty bar they were in when Fax hit Kite with the proposal. Anne Gately, watching PHJ sleep, could not only imagine but identify fully with how Fackelman, on hearing Kite say he could smell him dead, and why, with how Fackelman, instead of taking his bag full of blues and gluing on a goatee and immediately fleeing to climbs that had never even fucking heard of Metro Boston's North Shore, that the Faxter do done what any drug addict in possession of his substance would do when faced with fatal news and attendant terror. Fackelman made a fucking beeline for their luxury-stripped home and familiar safe-feeling hearth and had plopped down and immediately fired up the sterno cooker and cooked up and tied off and shot up and nailed his chin to his chest and kept it there with staggering qualities of, quantities of Dilaudid, trying to mentally blot out the reality of the fact that he was going to get demapped if he didn't take some kind of decisive remedial action at once. Uh, Fackelman made it to the... Uh the drug-free zone of an unsafe harbor. Mm-hmm. Boston Harbor. Boston Harbor. <laughs> because Gately realized even then, this was your drug addict's basic way of dealing with problems, <laughs> was using the good old substance to blot out the problem. Also probably medicating his terror by stuffing himself with peanut M&Ms, which would explain all the wrappers littering the floor of the corner he hadn't moved from. That thus, this is why Fackelman had been squatting moist and silent in a corner of the living room right outside this very bedroom here for days. I feel like this really puts into context the timeline of everything. Yes. Is that he's hearing this story while Fackelman is literally freaking out. In the bedroom. Uh, He's been in for like 72 hours. Blowing $250,000 worth of uh, painkillers one by one. And uh, a ankle deep quantity of uh, M&M's wrappers. Yeah. This was why the apparent contradiction of the staggering amount of substance Fackelman had in the gym bag next to him, together with the cornered toad look of a man in the great fear one associates with withdrawal. Charting and thinking, drumming his fingers absently on PHJ's unconscious skull, Gately realized he could more than empathize with Fackelman's flight into Dilaudid and M&M's, but he now realizes that that was the first time it ever really dawned on him in force that a drug addict was at root a craven and pathetic creature, a thing that basically hides. 
The most sexual thing Gately ever did with Pamela Hoffman Jeep was he liked to unwrap her cocoon of blankets and climb in with her and spoon in real tight, fitting his bulk up close against all her soft, concave places, and then go to sleep with his face in her nape. It bothered Gately that he could empathize with Falkelman's desire to hide and blot out, but in the retrospective memory, now it bothers him more that he didn't lie there up next to the comatose girl being bothered for more than a few minutes before he felt the familiar desire that blots out all bother, and that that night he had unwrapped the cocoon of bedding and arisen so automatically in service of this desire. Anne feels the worst of all that he lumbered out of the bedroom in just jeans and belt out to the gloaming living room where Fackelman was hunched moist and smeary-mouthed in the corner next to a mountain of 10 milligram Dilaudids and his mixing bowl of distilled water and works kit and sterno unit that Gately had lumbered so automatically out to Fackelman under the pretense, to himself too, the pretense was the worst thing, the pretense that he was just going to check on old poor Fackelman to maybe try and convince him to take some kind of action, go penitent to Sorkin, or flee the climb instead of just hiding there in the corner with his mind in neutral and his chin on his chest and a stalactite of chocolate drool from his lower lip lengthening because he knew that the first thing Fackelman would do when Gately left PHJ and lumbered out to the defurnished living room would be to fumble in his Gore-Tex works kit for a new factory-wrapped syringe and invite Gately to hunker on down and get right with the planet, i.e. ingest some of this mountain of Dilaudid to keep Fackelman company. Which, to Gately's shame, he did, had done, and had no part of the reality of Fackelman's creek and the need for action had even been brought up so intent were they on the blues somnolent hum blotting everything out while Pamela Hoffman Jeep lay wrapped tight in the other room, dreaming of damsels and towers. Gately did, he remembers vividly. He let Fackelman fix them both up but good and told himself he was doing it to keep Fackelman company, like sitting up with a sick friend and, maybe worse, believed it was true. Little on tracks of feverish dreams punctuate memories and being conscious, like uh, he dreams he's riding due north, on a bus the same color as its own exhaust, passing again and again the same gutted cottages, an expanse of heaving sea, weeping. The dream goes on and on, without any kind of resolution or arrival, and he weeps and sweats as he lies there, stuck in it. Gately comes sharply around when he feels the little rough tongue on his forehead, not unlike Nimitz, the MP's little pet kitten's hesitant tongue, when the MP had still had the kitten, before the mysterious period when the kitten disappeared and the garbage disposal wouldn't run right for days. Oh, God. And the MP <laughs> sat hungover with his notebook at the kitchen table with his blonde head in his hands and just sat there for several days. And Gately's mom went around pale as hell and wouldn't go near the kitchen sink for days and rushed to the bathroom when Gately finally asked what was the deal with the garbage disposal and where was Nimitz? When Gately gets his eyelids unstuck, though, the tongue is not even close to being Nimitz's. The wraith is back, right by the bed, dressed like before and blurred at the edges in the hat-shadowed spill of hallway light. And except now with him is another younger, way more physically fit wraith in kind of faggy biking shorts and a U.S. tank top who's leaning way over Gately's railing. Oh, God, I couldn't imagine the horror being visit visited by a ghost and the double horror of being visited by a ghost in a, like, athletic biking attire chris who who wears a uh, little little shorts and likes to lick foreheads who lyle oh okay he's leaning way over gately's railing and fucking licking gately's forehead with a rough little tongue and as gately reflexively strikes out at the guy's map no man put his tongue on dw gately and lived he has just enough time to realize the wraith's breath has no warmth to it or smell before both wraiths vanish and a blue forked bolt of pain from his sudden striking out sends him back against his hot pillow with an arched spine and a tube-impeded scream, his eyes rolling back into the dove-colored light of whatever isn't quite sleep. His fever is way worse, and his little snatches of dreams have a dismantled cubist aspect he associates in memory with childhood flu. He dreams he looks in a mirror and sees nothing and keeps trying to clean the mirror with his sleeve. One dream consists only of the color blue, too vivid, like the blue of a pool. An unpleasant smell keeps coming up his throat. He's both in a bag and holding a bag. Visitors flit in and out, but never Ferocious Francis or Joel Van D. He dreams there's people in his room, but he's not one of them. He dreams he's with a very sad kid, and they're in a graveyard, digging some dead guy's head up, and it's really important, like continental emergency important, and Gately's the best digger, 
but he's wicked hungry, like irresistibly hungry, and he's eating with both hands out of huge economy-sized bags of corporate snacks, so he can't really dig, while it gets later and later, and the sad kid is trying to scream at Gately that the important thing was buried in the guy's head and to divert the continental emergency to start digging the guy's head up before it's too late. But the kid moves his mouth, but nothing comes out, and Joel Van D appears with wings and no underwear and asks if they knew him, the dead guy with the head, and Gately starts talking about knowing him, even though deep down he feels panic because he's got no idea what they're talking about, while the sad kid holds something terrible up by the hair and makes the face of somebody shouting in panic, too late. <sighs> and here we are back again. Guess who's back? Back again. Digging up. J-O-I's head. <laughs> Tell a friend. <laughs> uh do you want to read that that little chunk there? And oh, then let's we'll be keep done. going. We've only read like four pages. Oh, really? Yeah. I, think I mean, we we're can... already at 30 minutes. Let's get a little further. Okay. I just want to keep getting into this delauded saga. Oh, God. Like we get, but there's more it's of that? It's not over. All right. Here's just one paragraph. Yes. She, she'd come out of the St. E's doors and turned right for the quick walk back up to Ennett and a grotesquely huge woman whose hose bulged with stubble and whose face and head were four times larger than the largest woman Joel had ever seen had grabbed her at the arm uh, uh, her grabbed her arm at the elbow and said she was sorry to be the one to tell her but that unbeknownst to her she was in almost mind-boggling danger it took rather a while for Joel to look her up and down this is supposed to be news <laughs> all right let's do another page okay so and but that night's so next, and but that <laughs> classic so and but that night's next am'd found Gately and Fackelman still there in Fackelman's little corner belts around their arms arms and noses red from scratching still at it the ingestion on a hell of a tear cooking up and getting off and eating M&Ms when they could find their mouths with their hands, moving like men deep underwater, heads wobbling on strengthless necks, the empty room's ceiling sky blue and bulging, and under it hanging on the wall overhead to their right, the apartment's upscale TP's viewer on a recursive slow-mo loop of some creepy thing Fackelman liked that was just serial shots of flames from brass lighters, kitchen matches, uh, pilot lights, birthday candles, votive candles, pillar candles, birch shavings, Bunsen burners, etc. that Fackelman had got from Kite, who just before dawn had come out dressed and declined to get high with them and coughed nervously and announced he had to leave for a few days or more for a totally key and unmiss unmissable software trade show in a different area code. Not knowing, Gately now knew he knew Fackelman already to be dead, with Kite then trying to leave discreetly with every piece of hardware he owned in his arms, including the non-portable DEC trailing cables. By the way, I think that thing that they uh, looping is a JOI movie. Various Small Flames. Uh, very. I, I assume that that was a JOI movie. Yeah. Sounds great. I would love to watch a YouTube. It, it, the description of that reminded me that uh, I needed to turn on uh, tennis highlights yes. in a... Uh, uh, on Buenos, on silent on the TV yes. because uh, of the need and and the feeling of appropriateness of hypnotic uh, slow mo or not slow mo hypnotic looping video yeah uh, accompaniment to the to what we do yeah yeah oh then a bit later as the AM light intensified yellowly. <laughs> and made both Gately and Fackelman curse the fact that the curtains had been stripped and pawned as they continued to hunch and cook and shoot. At maybe 0830 hours, Pamela Hoffman Jeep was up and vomiting briskly and applying, <laughs> <laughs> applying moose against the workaday day, calling Gately honey and her knight errand and asking if she'd done anything last night she'd have to explain to anybody today. Kind of an AM routine in their relationship. Applying blush and drinking her standard anti-hangover breakfast, she takes us to end note 377. A Phillips screwdriver, vodka and milk of magnesia, Ugh. which Gately finds nauseous and privately refers to as a low ball. <laughs> I don't think, what is milk of magnesia? Yes, I think it's some old school thing of like <laughs> general medicine. Milk of the poppy. Yeah. Back to the text. And watching Gately and Fackelman's chins fall and rise at slightly different underwater rates. The smell of her perfume and high retsin mints hung in the bare room long after she'd bid them both chow bello. 
As the AM sun got higher and intolerable, instead of taking action and nailing a blanket or something over the window, they opted instead to obliterate the reality of the eye-scalding light and began truly binging on blues, flirting with an OD. They scaled Fackelman's Mount Dilaudid at a terrible clip. Fackelman was by nature a binger. Gately was typically more like a maintenance user. He rarely went on a classic-type binge, which meant plunking down in one place with an enormous stash and getting loaded over and over again for long periods without moving. But when he did start a binge, he might as well have been strapped to the snout of a missile for all the control he had over length or momentum. Fackelman was having at the moment uh, at the having at the mountain of ten milligram blues like there was no tomorrow. <laughs> Every time Gately even started to bring up the issue of how Faxter had come by such a huge blue haul of the substance, trying maybe to invite Falcoman to confront the reality of his trouble by uh, describing it like Falcoman would cut him off with a soft, that's a goddamn lie. <laughs> this was pretty much all Falcoman ever would say when loaded, even in response to things like questions. You have to picture all the binges' verbal exchanges as occurring like very slowly, oddly distended, as if time were honey. Serious fucking stash you managed to come by somehow right here, fa. That's a goddamn lie. <laughs> man, man, I just hope Gwendine or C's got the phone out today out there, man, instead of Whitey. No business getting done out of here today, I don't think. It's a goddamn lie. <laughs> That's for sure, facts. It's a goddamn lie. Facts. The Faxter. Count Faxula. Goddamn lie. After a while and all the distension, it started to it got to be like a joke. Gately would haul his big head upright and try to allege the roundness of the planet, the three-dimensionality of the phenomenal world, the blackness of all black dogs. It's a goddamn lie. <laughs> uh, all right. We can stop there. You think that's good? Yeah. We're okay. not even close to being done. How many pages did we make it? Uh thir- six. Um eight. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're look. We're approaching the end. We need to really draw it out. You savor know, the savor Dilaudid. it. Yeah. Yes. Savor the 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 mountain of Dilaudid. Oh boy. So is that little thing that we just got there the the only secondary reference we're going to get to digging up uh, Joy's skull? It might be. I'm not sure how much we get other than that. Uh, I almost don't want to say anything about it. Okay, great. Well, but, don't do it. What I'm interested in, I think we already got the scene right that Lyle is like levitating alone in the locker room. So he has, I think, ostensibly meditated in some way that lets his spirit turn into a wraith and hang out with J.O.I. And they're trying to communicate something. He's doing astral projection. Yes. And maybe it's something about the licking of the forehead that transmits the... The information... Oh, the... uh, I don't know. The idea of... um, what he needs to do with, with Hal. With Hal, yes. Yeah. The, I don't know. The answer is in the skull. Because Lyle's like across, he felt Lyle's tongue yes. versus the Wraith has no, no feeling corporeal sense, feeling yes. at all. Yeah. So I've, I've, I don't know. I appreciate that he's trying to science fiction the whole thing, even though it is a bit, you know, yeah. it's a bit ridiculous. Yes. Uh, or it's not ridiculous at all. Who can say? Um. Somebody uh, sent me a long message about uh, the relationship between 60s Bob and uh, the uh, Antitois brothers and um, the entertainment, uh, to which I say, uh, cool, thanks uh, for the message, buddy, but uh, learn to send your to send the stuff that you want to send me with fewer words. No, I think that's I'll the say. thing is you need, you need all the words because yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so unbelievably convoluted. I I actually didn't even fully uh, pick up on it. I'll have to to revisit it. But Uh, all you need to know is that... The idea is that, like... uh, The loop is closing between where the entertainment comes from, where the money comes from, where the DMZ comes from. Yes. Oh, yeah, and the DMZ. The 60s Bob is the the originator of the DMZ in some way. Uh, Who cares? Look, again, the actual things that happen in a book like this, like, if you become obsessed with it, it's... It's cool to go go in on all the uh, little details, I guess. But really, in the end, all you need is vibes. That's I th- what's well, I really think important. There's something I think. So okay, so um, I t- I tweeted yesterday because there was a, a Vice like do- mini documentary about Caroline Calloway that came out. Is that out. new or were people it's just new. resurfacing? No, it? it's new. And she gives an interview in front of a bookshelf c- crowded with books in every nook and cranny, 
and Infinite Jest is displayed prominently. And you, you and did I, you, your uh, computer enhanced. And someone <laughs> asked me, they were like, "What can you like? Why is Infinite Jest a signifier of anything?" I'm like, "Oh, it's kind of a complicated question." If you think yeah, about that's it. what we've been trying to get get the, to the bottom yeah, of uh, in the last like two and a half years. But the I think the thing that I landed on was that like you. I don't even think I even managed to express it in a tweet. It's like you get out of it whatever you want out of it. Yeah. If you want something to solve, it is solvable. Yes. There is enough of a complex plot with all of these interconnected things that reveal over the course of a thousand odd pages and that it, you can feel like you are, you know, Carmen San Diego. And little, little hints and little, uh, you know, puzzles and stuff like that. Yeah. You can you can treat it. Yeah. Like a like a puzzle. That's it, always or the you could just go on vibes and be like this. Damn, this shit's crazy. That's always the least interesting way to approach art, art to me. Even if, but I, I look, I get why it's tempting because it's clearly designed with enough intentionality to, uh, to make it warrant that kind of examination. Mm-hmm. But anything that is like a solvable puzzle or something, I mean, solving the puzzle of art is, uh. Uh, yeah, again, like the least interesting way to approach any kind of art. I was, I mean, I was kind of joking about it on uh, the Chapo episode I was on on Thursday about, um, I, I mean, the most hilarious thing to approach this to is like uh, the movie Demolition Man. Mm-hmm. Great movie. There's this gag in it that in the future, instead of toilet paper, there are three seashells okay. next to the toilet. Yes. And the running joke is, what do you do with the seashells? Okay. Right. Yeah. And so every time the movie comes up, people are like, but what do you do with the seashells? I'm like, that's not the point. Yeah. The point is, it's a joke to have something inscrutable next to a toilet in the future. Yeah. That you don't know exactly what you're supposed to do with yeah. them. Yeah. It's yes. better that you don't know what well, to do with the seashells. That's just like life. It's the same when, you know, every, every everyone needs, you know, symbols to be yeah. explained is that life is full of unexplainable symbols. And you uh, can kind of tell that they're a symbol. But maybe you don't know what it means, and that's better. And that's actually better than trying to figure it out. Yes. I mean, it, it all goes back to, you know, what what is God? You can't you can't look him in the eyeball, so who the fuck is he? Yes, he's an, 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 an angel with 10,000 eyes and 40 wings. Yeah. No wonder scribble. humanity was like, what if he's like a guy? What yeah. if he's like another? Well, what if his son is like a guy? And God is like, <laughs> yeah, yes. this this guy. Oh God, he's like my whole right. like he's my he's he's my operator. He's he's my um yes. he's my enforcer. Uh, he's my representative. Uh, yeah, everything you need. He's a guy, and he's your friend always. <laughs> that's that's the boiling down. I understand oh why other people that think it, Christianity is kind of cucked because I'm like, really? We just think he's a guy, you're just a- like us. You're absolutely right. That Christianity is the uh, the like cinema sins video of Judaism. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of like it trying is. to solve, trying to uh, uh, figure out like all like solve the puzzles yeah. of of Judaism. Which isn't the pleasure not to not to speak for Jewish people, but at least in my what I hear about it is that the pleasure comes from the arguing about the meaning of things. Yes, and that in in fact makes a certain type of the Jewishness. Mi- the mystery is the point. Let Why? us proclaim the mystery of faith. That's a real thing that, that priests sing in the Catholic yeah. mass. And they say it, and then I'm like, yeah, the, get, get into it. The mystery of faith. That's the that's the fun of it. Why are things the way they are? I don't know. I mean, again, the, I, that's the and then that's Protestantism to Catholicism is being like being there. There's like there should be some unknowable mystery and then being like, no, I can solve the Bible like a math puzzle. Yeah. Everything has meaning, and l- let's take it a step further. Uh, let's live the same way that we were that they were living then. So anyway, infinite jest. Uh, yeah, sure. You can go back in and like link all, put all the um, fucking. You know, you can ma- you make a conspiracy corkboard and link everything with little pieces of twine. But also, who cares? Well, doesn't I, matter. I would like to personally say that if that's truly the pleasure that one gets out of this book, that's fine. That's great. It's definitely not the way I do it, but I'm yeah. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to judge another person's way of doing it. I'm just you more of a space individual. Uh, I thrive in ambiguity. Yeah. Um. It, you know the the soup of uh, uncertainty. What are yes. we all doing here? It's not clear, but boy, am I having a fun time figuring <laughs> it out. The, That's the other thing. Believing that when you is, die, that you like get all the answers and you like go to a fun place. I'm like, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> it's just more mysteries. Yeah. Mysteries on top of mysteries. Yeah. But 
yeah, don't don't yeah. solve the all, mysteries are uh, are yeah. unsolvable. It's not a life is not a who done it. Yes, faith uh, is not a who done it. Faith is a mystery. Uh, the <laughs> life is a mystery. Every, everyone must stand alone. Everyone. What am I? No, I, I can't. <laughs> oh God! Remember when we were watching that uh, Madonna video last night? Oh, I love that performance. Uh, wait. Music oh. makes the people. If you need a together. If you need a recommendation for a little pick me up, uh, look up "Music Inferno" uh, by Madonna. Oh, it's so on good. YouTube from her Confessions tour. It's, all I can say is roller disco. Yes, it's all on roller skates. It's awesome. It's can we watch crazy. it again after this? Yeah, of course we can watch it again. Okay, great. we can wa- we can put it on a loop and watch it over and over. That's my, that's my entertainment. Mix the bourgeoisie and the rebels. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Thinking of the visual of what the entertainment is supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, the wobbly lens and a very beautiful, possibly veiled woman leaning over and uh, apologizing for murdering you in the past life. That is very David Fincher, Freedom 90. Yes. Like, isn't that like... Is, but we were So, okay, last night... It's we were, also... Again, I'm sorry. I'm I'm just very in Demolition Man mode. It's kind of like the Demolition Man sex scene, uh, which you've I've never seen. seen but the the concept is is in the future you don't actually fuck. You put on like VR headsets and like have like mind sex basically. Yeah, that's and not there's like far a, away from what it is now. Uh, there's like a little uh, it, because the guy who made Demolition Man is primarily a video like a high art video artist, like an installation video artist. Sure. There's like a little. Not Corey Archangel. No. Okay. <laughs> but like that. Yeah. Uh, the there's like an insert of of what his imagination of what the VR headset sex is that yeah. is basically like glossy multi lit images of Sandra Bullock making like kissy faces. Sure. It's not. That's the entertainment. I, I look if I was to commission one person to make the entertainment. Oh fuck. See when we talk about making a infinite jest. TV series, I, I do really imagine it being like the, the high level is the conception. Then you got to got to farm it out to various artists, including somebody to make all the J.O.I. movies. Mm-hmm. The guy who directed De- Gem- Demolition Man is not a terrible choice mm. for who you would get to make the uh, the J.O.I. Um, movies. Yeah. Uh, he's still around. He's still making <laughs> high, uh, like fancy, like installation museum quality video art. Mm hmm. Damn, I should call him up. <laughs> call him up. <laughs> Why not? Yes, I'm sure, I'm sure he'd be honored. Uh, oh well, yeah. I was I was just saying we were last night watching a bunch of music videos, including some from the early '90s, like uh, Janet Jackson, uh, "Love Love Will Never Do Without You," and uh, George Michael, "Freedom '90." Great and, video. Uh, just treating like the human body and face like classical sculptures, where you yes. like, light light it really like flatteringly. Uh, and it's all about being very like glamorous and expensive looking. And I wonder if that aesthetic, which was very like late eighties into early nineties, ever influenced what David Foster Wallace thought of the aesthetic of a JOI movie, which are all very like formalist and very, you know, it's all about lighting and angles and mirrors and and lenses. I mean, um, he does kind of sound like a music video director. He does, yeah. Yeah. I think that's the the argument for music video directors not being able to direct real features is like all style, no, yeah. no substance. So we did have a moment there where the music video served as an, a, the perfect training ground and breeding ground for for new directors. It's it's such a I mean, I guess we still have music videos that are like proof of, that you can use as proof of concepts. But, you know, we should have more. Bring back MTV. Remember when they used to play music on MTV? <laughs> no, just no one has any no one has any money. It's a, it's very, you know, 1% yep. of the artists have 99% of the money for doing things. 1% of the artists have 99% of the music video budgets. But, you know, I actually think that the next wave of, like, true music video, like, aesthetic uh, trend would be something like the Ice Spice videos, which are absolutely shot with a guy having, like, an A7S2 or similar, just, like, on the streets of New York, yeah. hiring someone to do some, like, simple but effective uh, visual effects over it mm-hmm. uh, and just cutting it together so it looks looks absolutely crazy. But it's just Ice Spice, like, shaking her ass on a basketball court in Harlem or whatever. Sure. Uh, that The the proliferation of amateur, amateur videos uh, to a wider level, I think, is... Yeah. It's happening. It's happened. And I like it. It's cute. And it's good. The, bu- the it's it's giving you know like three hundred dollar budget, uh, but 
yeah. for Ice Spice, a very popular well, you rapper. The, you have to buy the camera, but then you don't have to spend any money on the uh, yes. the actual video. Yeah. Yep. You can do a lot for a little right now. It's true. And, and Which is good. why I'm going to bring back p- Premium Blend. Premium Blend? Yeah. What's what's that? It was like a Comedy Central uh, stand-up uh, show where they would have like three or four different like five to seven minute sets from up and coming stand-ups as like a mixtape. Okay. It was great. They played it all the time. You got to see people do funny bits. Uh, I assume it cost some amount of money to produce in the nineties uh, because you actually had to get cameras there, but now you can make it for, you can make an episode of premium blend for like a thousand bucks. Yeah. Well, shit. Yep. Someone should do it. Uh, <laughs> co- copyright Chris Wade, 2023. We're bringing back uh, premium blend. I'm also going to make podcasts, the show, uh, which is just also the same thing. You take like, give like various different podcasts, like $15,000 and be like, well, how, how can you distill your thing? what your podcast is to a video medium that takes like 20, like 26 minutes. Yeah. That's um, a good idea. Yeah. Podcast the show. Podcast the show. The musical. Yes. Podcast the show, the musical, the book. The, book. Um, the pamphlet. What What else you got? I got, I got nothing else. Fackelman is fucked. Yeah. He's, I mean, I mean he's, he's dead. Gonna, we, is he just going to overdose himself? There's a lack. No. I can tell you no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all you need to know is that uh, he's dead. Dead as a doornail. He's red, nude, mad, and dead. He's, yes. Um, and the question is just going to be Who, how. How how why. it happens. K- Kite is funny that he comes up with an excuse to uh, get all of his computer equipment and his, uh, his map out of there. Uh, because he is correct in that you don't want to be around... When you found out that you've screwed your uh, boss, your mobster boss, out of your white bulger esque boss, not good. Yeah, uh, it is. It's also really cute that he thinks that he can op- start his own uh, drug dealing concern, as if that isn't one of the uh, most difficult businesses to succeed in, really. Uh, and also the the classic first rule for uh, starting your own drug dealing business: uh, don't get high on your own supply, which yeah. he immediately does. Yeah, you can. Uh, if you if that is the first thing you do when you get a supply, then you're probably not going to start a uh, drug em, em, uh, emporium. No, you got you got to keep a uh, keep them separated. But you got to keep them separated. Oh, bang, bang, bang. Okay, I've got I've got nothing, you else. nothing else. Yeah. Wait, I wanted to wait for another uh, close up on Kyrgios. Yeah. Kyrgios, that's Medvedev, right? Med- Medvedev. 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 I think a Medved is in Russian a bear, so he's so like he's a bear man. Bear, bearman. Unless I'm completely pulling that out of bear, my bearman. Ass. Medved. Bear. Come on, give me a close up of Kyrgios. Oh, come on. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. I think he's not serving, so it's oh yeah, it's harder so it's probably to not focus on him. Anyway, the point is, is that Curios has the the kind of chain that I would like. Oh, okay. Well, we can definitely um, um look, pause on that. And, yes, look at look into it. Yeah. All right, I'll turn this off as soon as I have enough energy to actually sit up and reach the uh, controller. <laughs> Are you uh you in a I'm, state of uh, yeah? I'm chin chesting like chin chesting like the uh the boys in the uh. Fellas, is it is it is it nice to sit? Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> you just want to sit down. Sometimes you just want to uh, go into a a near catatonic state with your homies, <laughs> crouched up against a uh, a wall. Yeah. Okay, here I go. Here you go. <laughs> <sighs>